Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 28 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the evening service of Sunday the 29th of November 2009, entitled A Summary of Where We've Been, Part 2, and the Bible readings are taken from Jude verses 3 and 4 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 17. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. We'd like to open your Bible to two places this evening to start with. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, while you've got your finger there, turn to the book of Jude once again. We read the entire book of Jude this morning. I just want to read two verses again this evening. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, beginning in Jude and verse 3. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that... When I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, 
comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness and letting us be here. We thank you most of all one day, Lord, that you did reach down and save our wretched souls. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that lives and dwells within us, that not only seals us until the day of redemption, but, Lord, we know that he intercedes on our behalf according to your will. We know, Father, that it's through his power, Lord, that these words can be made alive. We pray once again this evening that you would make these words alive under hearts, that you would quicken them, Lord, as only you can through your power. You know the hearts, you know the needs here this evening. Lord, may you lead, guide, and direct in all that's said and done. May you be glorified and honored. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, as we said this morning, that today's sermon was a little different, a little unusual. We were on number 27 this morning, so I guess that means we're on number 28 this evening in this series on contending for the faith. And of course, our purpose today is that I know that after some almost 30 sermons on a subject that sometimes some of it can just kind of start all getting kind of losing our focus as to what's going on in there. It'll be interesting as we look here just in a, in a bit that, of course, over half of those were preached upon the one thought of Jesus Christ our Lord and the fundamentals that have to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. And a big portion of those, which we'll be looking at again this evening, were on his visible return to this earth. Now, remember, as we look this morning, we looked again to remind ourselves not to lose track, not to lose sight, that the purpose of this series is that as we look into the book of Jude, that God's word, God's truth, this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that it's been commended to our keeping and we have been commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ to contend for that faith, to fight for that faith, to stand for that faith, because there are those that will slip in unaware and would lead us to state. And we talk much and we we certainly won't have time to go back through those and all of the series, all of the sermons, they're, they're there on the website if you want to uh, to go back to any of them. But we dealt very much with this thing of apostasy, those that have had the truth but have turned from the truth. And we looked at all of those things concerning that contending. And then we moved into what is it exactly that we're supposed to be fighting for? We look at this broad spectrum because everybody's right <laughs> and everybody's doing it the Bible way. And everybody's way is the truth. How do we know the difference? And of course, that's why we said that the very first fundamental of the faith, that that is foundational, that which which we cannot give on, that which makes us one of us that we can disagree on many things. But there are certain things that are so fundamental, are so foundational to our faith that we must agree on those things if we are of the same faith. And one is that we have not the word of man nor the word of religion, nor the word of a church, nor the word of a denomination, but that this is the inspired word of God. Folks, we're going nowhere without that. That is the basis of our faith. Jesus Christ himself, the Bible teaches us that he chose those 12 apostles and they were the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The basis of our faith is right here in the Word of God. This is that faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't have to take man's word for it. Now, we may as well recognize and be honest. We know that there are an awful lot of confused people out there because they don't all see it 
the way we see it, right? We all think that we have it right, but we realize that, of course, as I've said many times, that even after you can preach this book for 30-some years as I have, and you still find out, more. there's so much. There's so much there. You'll never, ever, ever run it dry. But the truth is, is that in all of that, there are those things that we must. And the first is that we, we saw this fundamental of the truth, which is the inspired Word of God. And I used all those eyes, not to try to impress you, but try to help you remember it. We looked at God's Word, that it was inspired, that it was inerrant, that it was infallible, that it was indestructible, that it was indisputable, and that it was inclusive. It had everything that we needed. God gave us the truth. God gave us the words there that, uh, that would change our lives. The second fundamental of the truth, not only the inspiration of the Word of God, but is the eternal existence of a triune God. The eternal existence. Jesus Christ didn't come in the beginning. God didn't come in the beginning. We have an eternal God, the beginning and the end. It's all in Him, and He's there in three persons for all of eternity. And, of course, we looked at those things and studied those things and went through those things. And then, of course, we said sermons 12 through 26, a total of 15 sermons, cover four fundamentals concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. I made absolutely no bones, no apologies for the fact that our faith rests upon a person. It's not upon a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations. It's not on what tradition has taught us that overrides that, but it's about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And folks, everything will rise and fall on what we believe about Jesus Christ. And we looked at some of those fundamentals, and of course, we, we said that, of course, we first went through the fundamental of his virgin birth. And of course, you know, that was vital. It was important. We discussed that. We discussed the importance of his vicarious death, his substitutionary atonement, if you would. We discussed the fundamental of his victorious resurrection. The fact that he did literally bodily, it wasn't just some spiritual thing. He bodily rose from that grave, praise God. He conquered it for you and I, and that's what gives us hope for the future. But then, where well, we've spent the last 11 sermons was on this fundamental of the faith of his visible return, the second coming of Christ. Folks, it's not just a chance that he might come someday, that we hope that he might turn up again someday to visit us, the simple truth is he is coming again, personally and visibly. As we looked at this fundamental, and of course remember what, we, what we've tried to do today, as we have spent all these weeks looking through trying to understand what it is, what the truths are that we must fight for, but why they are fundamental to the faith, why that they, they're, they're so, uh, so important that no matter what anybody says or what anybody does, that these are things that we must hold to. Why that there are things that you cannot discard and still have the same faith that you do with them. But not just that we know a bunch of theological terms that we've heard and that have been passed around, but we've spent all of this time, all of these weeks, so that we can try to see in the Word of God, if that's the basis of our faith, in the Word of God, why that these things are essential. Now, we began, when we began to look at the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that we did was we tried to define the importance of this truth. Why was it so important? And I gave you 
six reasons, and that wasn't exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, but I gave you six reasons why that the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ is so important to our faith. First of all, because Scripture declares it. If the Word of God says it, that should be sufficient in itself of all. But Scripture declares the second coming, and we looked at some of those things. Secondly, because the Savior himself promised it. He was the one that said he was coming again. He was the one as he was preparing his disciples there before that he was to be carried off to the cross. There in John chapter 14 when he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a glorious promise. And we looked at other places where the Lord Jesus Christ has promised it. We said, thirdly, that it's important because it's what the saints receive comfort and hope from. You know, we again hinted on that verse this morning that the Bible tells us that if it's in this life only that we have hope, then we're a people most miserable. <laughs> we're a miserable lot. But no, our hope is beyond this. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his visible return. It is important because the scripture declares it. The Savior promises it. The saints receive comfort and hope from it. And fourthly, because Satan hates it. And anything he hates and anything he fights against, it's got to be important for the Lord. Boy, he hates the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, because sinners and saints alike are challenged by it. There's one thing that when we look at the second coming of our Lord that it should do to each and every one, it should challenge our lives. If you're lost and don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never put your faith and trust in him, then you should recognize that that trumpet could sound, that he could come back, and that hope will be gone for all eternity. But right now, by his grace, you still have opportunity. And as believers, if we genuinely, as we say that we do according to the Scriptures, if we believe in his imminent return, then we ought to be at it, ought to challenge our hearts to win our family and our friends and those we're in contact with. We ought to win them to the Lord because the day is coming when there will be no more opportunity. And of course, sixthly, we said it's important because sensibility demands it. <laughs> Just common sense teaches us everything that we're believing and everything that we're fighting for, everything that we're doing, we know that the Lord's coming back and he's going to make it all correct. What we're doing is not in vain. It's not for a waste. Secondly, not only did we try to define the importance, but then we went on to describe the meaning because a lot of times when you're talking about the second coming of Christ, people have all kinds of different ideas, some of them very different, some of them not so different. But we began by saying the second coming, we're not talking about the Christian's death. Yes, that's when a saint enters into the presence of Christ. But that's not the same as the second coming of Christ. We also said that it's not the coming of the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus Christ himself, when he left, he said that it was expedient that he go, that he might send another comforter, the paraclete, alongside us. It's not the conversion and Christ coming into the life. Yes, 
Christ comes into the life of every human being that humbles themselves and puts their faith and trust in him. But that's not the second coming of Christ. We said it's not the consummation of the ages that will follow, which we looked at later on in our studies. The second coming of Christ isn't those things. We said there's a couple things that we know that it is for sure. We looked at the truths and the scriptures that taught us that his coming is personal. It's Jesus Christ himself that's coming back. Remember when the angel stood there, when Jesus uh, ascended back into heaven, there in the book of Acts, and they said, this same Jesus, this same Jesus that you see going, that same Jesus is coming again. We know that his coming is personal. And secondly, I said, not only is it personal, but we saw that it is perceptible. What do you mean? It's visible. The Bible talks about it like the, the lightning as it flashes. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth, folks, people are going to know it. It's not going to be something that people are going to miss. Now, we looked at all these things and we took time in scriptures, but then we moved to the part and, 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 and I made this clear as we looked at those things. And I wanted to, to, to make this very clear once again tonight that the fundamental in all of this is that in our faith, in the faith of the true Christian, the true faith that God has given to us, the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ is a fundamental of that faith. But as that fundamental of that faith is there, there's some things that we've spent a lot of time on that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ would disagree with us. And we note that everybody doesn't believe that the timing and the way these things are going to unfold, everybody doesn't believe them the same way. Now, I gave you a couple of charts just to try to help you in your studies. I noticed I think they've all disappeared back there again. I keep running them off every week and uh, they, they're, uh, they're going. But I gave you two charts. And again, not because that I'm some kind of a, a brain or a whiz, but you know, it helps me to have something in front of me to look at. And the first one, and I'm not going to bother putting it up on the, on the screen tonight, the first one is just a time chart, a timeline of the events of the second coming. And, of course, as we look at this, we said one thing that is vital and important, if these scriptures are ever to make sense to you, just like what we read there this evening out of Second Thessalonians, you'll find that the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is in two stages. And we looked at all of that, and we looked at the timing, and we looked at the, the rapture when he's coming to call the saints into the air. We looked at then the, the coming with those saints to the earth, and we looked at all those things. But that was a time chart that we went through. And then I gave you another chart. Again, not because I'm so brainy, but I have to put things out and lay things out. And this was just something that I did. And, and you know, folks, everybody doesn't have to like this, and everybody doesn't have to agree with this. It's just things that, that, that hopefully will be a help to you. And, of course, this is just trying to take the book of Revelations and lay it out in a very, very easy format. There's, there's seven columns down this way, and there's seven things in each of those things across. There were seven seals and seven trumpets and seven personages and seven vials and seven dooms that we look at. And we just see it all in, in, in an order that hopefully makes it look easy. God gave it to us to understand, not to confuse us. And we went through those things. Now, as we looked at the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ... I just want to remind you that we looked at Scripture 
And we looked at many of those things that I believe with all of my heart that the next event in Scripture to do with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the rapture of the church from this earth. There is absolutely, positively nothing that would hinder that happening before we leave this service tonight. And he's going to come as a thief in the night. That's going to be a time when he's not coming to the earth. We see on your chart where the first, the, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which remain will be called up to meet them in the air. They got six foot further to go, right? That's why they have to, they get, they get to head out first because they've got six foot farther to go. But we're going to all come together in the air. And the Bible says we're going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. We find that that mortality must put on immortality. That corruptible must put on incorruption. Oh, thank God. We'll not have those sinful bodies to contend with anymore. We find that during that time, again, just by trying to, to make it simple to understand that that here in the red, this is what's taking place here upon the earth. While up here in heaven, there's things going on. All the saints, the church is raptured out of here. So they're in heaven. We saw that while they're the saints, they're in heaven. Heaven that we see the judgment seat of Christ, where that each and every uh, child of God will give an account for the things that he's done in the flesh, both good and bad, the Bible says. It's where the crowns will be distributed. And we find that it's also where the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, praise God. The bride is made ready. We find that at the same time that that's happening there, we looked at the remaining sinners here on earth. And what is known as the seven years of tribulation. And of course, there's a number of scriptures that are marked out there. We looked at the Olivet Discourse. We looked at the 70th week of Daniel. We looked at the revelation that was given to John. And we began to tie this time chart in with the book of Revelation and the prophecy that's given to us there. We said that, again, as we looked at these things, we saw how that during those years here upon this earth, we went through those seals as they were opened and those trumpets that were blown. We, we went through those different people that, that was being dealt with and those, those vials that were being poured out. We find that this is why we say that the second coming of Christ is in two stages. It's one event. I gave you the illustration. There's many things we can look at. You know, some events are instantaneous. Some events take a few minutes. Some events take a few hours. Some take a few days. Have you ever been to an event that spread over several days? What about an event that lasts maybe a week or several weeks? Some of us have been involved in history with events like wars that last years. One event but a lot of different battles, a lot of different things, a lot of different activity that's taking place during that event. Most of you weren't in the adult Bible study this morning. We're talking about there as we looked at some of the prophecy out of the book of Isaiah. And of course, as we see from the Old Testament, we saw how that back there in Isaiah chapter 42 where this prophecy was being given, and yet we go into the New Testament and we see where that, that was being fulfilled in the New Testament when the Messiah came. But of course, in the Old Testament, they didn't know about the New Testament church. That was a mystery that hadn't been opened to them yet. And so as they looked, they didn't see the difference in the first advent and the second advent of Christ many times. They just saw Christ coming. They didn't see the church age in between. They didn't see him, the period between his dying on a cross and rising again and his return to this earth. 
by the same situation. Remember that prior to that, the Lord was using the nation of Israel in dealing with his business here upon this earth. People have always got saved the same way, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in a coming Messiah. In a Messiah, you and I know that that's, that's why that, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, praise God, he went into paradise and he set those captives free, praise God. The ones that had put their faith. Yes, they had those sacrifices they had to perform year after year after year after year. Because the ultimate sacrifice, <laughs> that ultimate Passover lamb, had not yet been offered. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and final sacrifice, and it's his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone that's ever saved anybody. But God has dealt and managed his earth. And of course, at one time, he was dealing through the nation of Israel even though he was God of the whole world. Now he's working through his church. Jesus Christ built his church, and he works through the church. But remember again, we said if you're going to understand correctly, you're going to understand when that rapture takes place, guess what? Church is gone. Who does he call the 144,000 evangelists from? He calls them from the nation of Israel again. People are going to be on earth from all kinds of nations all over the world. And the same God, it'll take the same faith as it always has for any of them to be saved. But he'll be working through the nation of Israel again. And much of these seven years of tribulation, if you understand it, you've got to realize that that's the focus that he's using once again. He takes the church out of here. And he'll use his chosen nation, the nation of Israel, once again to do his work here upon this earth. We looked at so many of those things that are taking place during that. But you've got to understand that this is two stages. The first stage, when Jesus Christ first comes for his church, he's not coming to the earth. We saw where that he's returning in the air for his church. He's going to call the saints out of here, praise God. But seven years later, he's coming back with the saints, with the church, to the earth. And of course, as he comes back at the end of that seven years, again, if you had your timeline and if you looked on your study of the book of Revelation. We saw the return with his church to the earth. He's returning with the saints. He returned to do battle. He returned to bring doom to his enemies. When he came back, we saw that he came back and there's the, the battle of Armageddon. And of course, we saw where that during the seven years of tribulation, the people were being wiped out. People were being destroyed by the different things that were taking place. But when he comes back, he finishes the job at the battle of Armageddon. So we find that he then literally, yes, we said that when he comes, he's going to reign with his church on this earth for a thousand years. Many people believe that that's not real, that that's symbolic. We looked at three different reigns. The Bible speaks about, first of all, his eternal reign. Yes, he's always been God. He will always be God, and he'll always reign from heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. We talked about his essential reign. That's when the Bible teaches us and talks about that when we, as, as his children, when we put our faith and trust in him, then we need to let Jesus Christ rule and reign in our lives personally, individually. It's essential if we're going to, to live for God and know the joy as a Christian. But we said the Bible also talks about his earthly reign. And again, folks, we looked at a number of things there. We looked at these three primary areas, those that believe in a post-millennialism, those that believe in an amillennialism, and those that as we ourselves believe in a premillennial return of Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom. And again, 
I said and tried to be gracious in the fact that I know that I've got brethren that are just as saved as I am, brethren that are more capable in the pulpit than I am by a long shot. Many of them would believe this timing different. You know, it's kind of like you take a great man like I can remember reading about George Whitfield and, and John Wesley, and of course they were contemporaries. They ministered at the same time. And of course there was something that was very different because of course John Wesley in his theology was, was very much as most of the Methodists would still be today. Um, and whereas George Whitfield was very, a very strong Calvinist, uh, and he believed very strong in the, in the doctrines of, of the, uh, of the Reformation and whatnot. And uh, so you had Arminianism and Calvinism that were at extremes with each other, but yet these men, as they ministered, I remember reading in one of their biographies uh, that George Whitfield said to John Wesley one day, said, you know, I know with all my heart that we're going to both be in heaven one day together. I have no doubt about that because we've trusted and put our faith in the same thing. He said, you know what the real difference is, John? He says, you're going to be worrying every day for the rest of your life whether you're still saved and whether you're going to make it or not. He said, I'm going to be happy and content in knowing that it's a job already finished and done. Well, I think both of them could go to extremes in their doctrines, and the, men, the tags of men are not important. It makes me real happy when a lot of times people can't figure out if he's a Calvinist or an Armenian. Well, I don't, I don't care to be either one, to tell you the truth. I just want to be biblical. I believe that God is sovereign in everything that he does, but I don't believe that God has predamned anybody to a place in hell. I don't believe his, his will for anybody to go there. Nobody can be saved without God's intervention. Nobody will want to be saved without God's intervention. If the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you and draw you, then you're not going to come anyway. So it's all of God. But at the same time, we have a great responsibility to give that gospel to every creature that's living. But the same thing here. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that believe different. And again, maybe it's just because, you know, I'm a pretty simple person. And I can be, I can remember being taught very early in my study of Scripture a very simple thing that I've shared with you before. And that was that when the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. And, and if you look at the Bible and you just take it for what it says, you just take it to mean what it says without making this stuff symbolic and without trying to say, well, that's, that's not real, but it's just, it's just a type of something else and all of this, then you can't come to any other view than a premillennial return of Christ to this earth to set up a literal kingdom. Now, if my brethren want to symbolize that, they can stay just as saved and all of that, and praise God, that's fine, because that's not going to send them to hell. But we said this, even though that the timing is not the fundamental it is very, very important. We said that it's a pretty dangerous area when you just try to avoid it. Many would just put in their statement of faith, we believe in the visible return of Christ. They don't say when or how or anything about it. We're not trying to be picky when we put in ours that we believe in a pre-tribulational uh, return of Christ and a pre-millennial return of Christ to this earth to, to set up his literal uh, kingdom upon this earth. We're not trying to be picky. It's just that if you're going to be a part in the body of this church, that's where our teaching and our preaching is going to come from. We need to be unified on these things. It's going to affect many things in our teaching. And no, I don't think you're a heretic if you don't agree with me on it, but you're not going to enjoy my preaching very much when I touch on that subject if you're coming from an amillennial or postmillennial point of view. As a body of Christian believers together, it would be pretty confusing if we didn't care 
We had one teacher get up at teaching this and another would get up at teaching something else. How much of God's Word has to do with prophecy? We need to know how we're going to interpret it and how we're going to understand those things. And so we looked at those things as we, as we looked at Scripture. And I've completely lost track of where I was at up here now. The reign of His church on the earth. And then finally, the last part of His visible return we looked at the result of his coming on eternity. We saw, first of all, the eternal doom that it would bring to many. We looked at the doom of the deceived. We looked at the doom of the devil himself. And, of course, the doom of the dead. Because we find that at the great white throne of judgment after we've come through the millennial reign, of course, there again, we've got it all on your chart there. We saw how that even after Jesus Christ himself is set up on that throne and he's reigned for a thousand years, we find that the battle of Gog and Magog has to take place because even though Satan's been bound for that thousand years, when he's released, when he's loosed from that, first thing he does is he goes out to the nations of the world and he raises up all these forces that are foolish enough to join with him and they surround the people of God. They surround the holy city. Folks, just like, remember, at Armageddon, the Bible teaches that we're all coming back with him. It only teaches one person is fighting that battle. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that needs to take that victory. The battle of Gog and Magog. The Bible says that literally fire out of heaven will come down and devour them. We find that when we get to the end of that millennial reign, when we come to this point that then again, all the unbelievers are wiped out. There's nobody left but believers. We find that all of those that are alive are only those that are alive in Christ. All those that have not put their faith at that point in time, they're physically dead in the graves. There's nobody living upon the face of the earth anymore. But the problem is they're not only physically dead, they're spiritually dead. And that's when the dead of all time will be raised to stand before the great white throne of judgment that is not to judge their destiny. That's already decided. They would not be there if they were not already spiritually dead. And so we find that we saw where that not only in chapter 20 of Revelation do we see all of this dooming, but then praise God. We saw that there's another result that the coming of Christ is having upon eternity, not only for the doom but the eternal delight that it's going to bring for those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise God, we went through there and we saw that, because we saw that literally Peter described, you know, the earth and the heavens literally melting away, being destroyed. I mean, everything that's had this curse upon it, folks, it will be gone. But then the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new people and a new temple and a new light and a new paradise. And we looked at all those things, praise God. We can't even begin to comprehend and imagine what life is going to be like with no Satan, with no sin, with no sinful flesh to contend with. When it's all been done away with, we can't even begin to imagine it. We get some glimpses as we look through Scripture last Sunday evening, wasn't it? That's what you wanted me to preach again today, wasn't it, Rolda? For those that missed it, well, they missed it again, praise God. 
Truth is, it's going to be a glorious day for the saints. You see, once and for all, you know, we, we answered some of those questions. Well, why in the world? I mean, if, if God binds Satan for a thousand years while he's reigning upon his earth, why in the world would he turn him loose again at the end to, to come out and cause trouble again? Because all those people that have been born during that thousand years, they're going to have to make the same choice that you and me and everybody else has made. There's only two sides in this, folks. There's only two. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. They're going to have the choice. They can either be deceived by Satan, just as many are deceived today and always have been, or they can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the choice that they will have. And at the end of that, every human being that's ever lived, they will have had the same choice. And the truth is, then, Satan and sin can be dealt with once and for all, and it will be destroyed. And everything that's had a sinful curse on it, it's going to be destroyed. And it's all going to be new. And it's all going to be sinless. And it's all going to be incorruptible. And we said, yeah, sometimes, you know, people get confused and, and they all these different things. Well, you know, the truth is, we even see in Scripture there where the, the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, literally down to this earth. Folks, it doesn't matter where we are. The real picture that we see is that wherever we are, wherever heaven is at, it's going to be with the Lord. It's going to be with God. He's going to be the light. We see this, this just slight tidbits of information to give us an idea of just how wonderful and beautiful that it's going to be for the child of God. You see, there's only one way we can ever get to there. That's Jesus Christ must come back. Sin and Satan must be put away once and for all, for all of eternity. How many times and how many different sermons and how many different illustrations have you heard me make that small point that's so important? God can't allow even one sin to slip through into heaven or there is no heaven. It was one sin in the Garden of Eden. That one sin of disobedience with that sin came death. We look at all the horror that we see in this world as a result of what began with one sin in the Garden of Eden. None of it existed prior to sin. If God allowed the smallest sin to enter heaven that hadn't been put under the blood, there could be no heaven. Heaven could not exist. Sin must be dealt with. It must be finalized. It must be dealt with once and for all. And that's what God, God created you. He wants you to live in that kind of a world. He wants you to live in that kind of a society where the sin has no part in it whatsoever. And so the result of the coming on eternity depends on which side that you're on. And every person must make that choice for themselves. We can't turn over enough new leaves. I said this morning, you can't pray enough prayers. You can't become part of enough churches. You can't begin to start doing good enough things. We're all on level ground. I, I like the old songwriter said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
Doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what color your skin is, doesn't matter what kind of a job you got, what kind of a title that you do or don't have, how young or how old that you are, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It takes the same thing for every human being. Every human being themselves must humble themselves before a holy God and admit their sinfulness and recognize that there's only one thing that can deal with their sin, and that was the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. He shed his blood. His blood was what was the atonement for that sin. He was the one that conquered it. He was the one that rose the third day. And if we've got any hope whatsoever, it's all completely in Him. When we go before a holy God, we can only ask for mercy because of Jesus, praise God. He is a merciful God. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's only God's grace. None of us get what we deserve. But we'd all be in hell. By God's grace and faith is the highway. Trusting Him, believing Him. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and without the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This evening, every human being is the same path. And then we finished up our series last Sunday night with those two simple questions. When is He coming? When is he coming? Can I say this? If you see the scriptures, if you see prophecy in the way that we look at it, if we see the Bible when it speaks of the second coming, you see, there is absolutely every scripture that has been prophesied must be fulfilled. But there is nothing according to scripture that must be fulfilled. Yes, it must be fulfilled before the day of the Lord, before the end of that seven years, before it all comes to an end then. But there's nothing else in Scripture that I can see anywhere that must be fulfilled before he raptures the church out of here, praise God. That could take place right now. That could take place tonight before we even leave here. And every other Scripture that will be fulfilled before he comes to set up his kingdom can be fulfilled during that seven years of tribulation. Folks, he can come tonight. He could come tomorrow. We don't know. The Bible teaches that so clearly. We don't know. We talked about that thief in the night. You know, Brother Jeff, is the thief ever called up to make an appointment to come break in your house? <laughs> That's not usually the way they work, is it? They come when you don't expect them. We're not going to be, you know, we're supposed to be looking for them. We're supposed to be watching all the time. We as the, as the saints should be expecting of it. We should be looking for it. We don't know what moment that it's going to be. And we ask ourselves a second question. When will it be? And what should we do while we're waiting? What should we do while we're watching? And we looked at a number of scriptures that taught us those things. And I'm, I really wrapped up last Sunday night by saying this, and I mean it with all my heart. I believe if we really, really, really believed that Jesus could come back tonight, it would change our lives. If we knew, if we knew we had one day, if we knew that we had one week, if we even knew that we only had one year left, 
how would it change our lives? If we really believe that Jesus is coming, we believe that he could come today. It could happen right now. The first stage of that could happen, and the saints would be out of here. And folks, listen, you don't have to agree with me on this, but according to what we read there in 2 Thessalonians earlier, I believe if you're sitting here tonight, and if you reject the truth tonight, then according to that scripture, your chances are probably gone. Because he said those that have rejected it, they will believe a lie. They will be damned. The truth is, God, by His grace, is giving you opportunity. Some setbacks, oh, you know, if the rapture takes place, then I'll get saved because I'll know it's true. <laughs> Folks, I don't believe you've got that luxury. Now, some disagree with that. That's fine. I'd sure hate to count on it according to what we read there in 2 Thessalonians. Truth is, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, by God's grace, if you don't know it, if you've never truly been saved, you can be saved. Right now, if we knew our Lord was coming back, how different would we live our lives and what we do tonight? What would be important to us tomorrow if we knew that it was the last day we had before Jesus came back? Will we live our lives in that way when we get up in the morning? Folks, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you live. If you truly look expectantly as, as, as the Scriptures have taught us, if we really believe our Lord is coming, that He's coming soon, that He could come at any time. Now, of course, remember, remember, and, and even if you listen to these sermons, remember when, when, when we first went just through the study of Revelation itself, I forget how many years it took us when we first went through a verse-by-verse -verse study of, of the book of Revelation here in our, in our Bible study time, it took years. And even then, we were skimming over some stuff so quick that I wish we'd, we would have had more time. I've, I've tried to condense it down into just a few sermons for you over these recent weeks. But hopefully, remember, why are we looking at these things now? It's because somebody's got to stand up and be counted. Somebody's got to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Somebody's got to be willing to stand for those truths and not compromise and not give them away and not say that they don't matter. And I want you to understand the things that are important. I don't want you just to know a bunch of theological words and names and titles and tags that you can toss around and say, yeah, I believe this and I believe that. Why do you believe it? What's it based upon? Why are we spending these, these times and looking at these things? Because I want you to know in your heart, because God's shown you in his word why these things are important and why that they are so important that we must be willing to fight for them and stand for them and never give in to anybody that would take them away. We find that too many people today, too many people don't even know what they believe, let alone why they believe it. <laughs> the art of what's known as apologetics, of being able to give an apology, of being able to give a reason for your faith. The Bible says we ought to always be able to give a reason. We ought to always be able to say, yes, I believe this because this is what God says. That's why we're going to be continuing. That's why we took this break here today.
so that we don't lose sight of what we're doing here, that we've got to remember what it is that this contending for the faith is all about and why it's so important. And we also said that just as surely as there are many things that are not being taken as seriously as they ought to, there's also an awful lot of God's people that are being divided and split and fighting and bickering over things that are not essential anyway. They're not important. Now, we're a local church. We're a people that unite together for a common cause, to be governed in the way that God has said that we would. And we lay out our statement of faith of what our, our common faith is that we stand upon. That doesn't make us any better than anybody else. But folks, I, I do not want to be a part of, nor pastor, just some social club that doesn't really want to make a difference, that somehow their, their Christianity is just something that's just, that's just tacked on. I want to be a part of something that's real. People that know what they believe and why they believe it. I want to see a strong church here. Not somebody can, can point and say, you know, well, look how many people they've got. and look. I want to be a strong church so that we can make a difference in this city and we can make a difference in this world that Jesus Christ might get all the glory. We need to be a strong church. We need to be united together and we need to be busy about the Lord's work. We need to be making a difference in this world because he is coming soon. That's what he left us to do. I'll remind you, we're getting ready to come into a new year on the calendar. I'll remind you of what I've reminded you a few new years. God's got you here for a reason. I don't care who you are this evening. I don't care who you are, whether you're sitting up there, whether you're young and old, whether you're listening to this on the internet. I don't care this evening. The truth is, there's not a one of you as a child of God that wouldn't be better off if your next heartbeat was your last. There's nobody that wouldn't be better off in heaven. Why are we still here? What has God left us here for? We're supposed to be the salt of this earth. We're supposed to be the light. We're supposed to be the ones making a difference. We're supposed to be making sure that the truth of the gospel gets to every creature upon the face of this earth. What does God want to do with your life? That was the question that I left you with this morning. What does God want to do with you? What are you willing to let God do with you? None of us know how much that we've got left, young or old. None of us really know. But folks, don't just believe what you believe. What did I say this morning? What have I said before? I hope that you can be in this church and have confidence in your pastor because he's your pastor and believe that he's preaching you the truth. That doesn't mean I'll never make a mistake. That's why I give you the scriptures. That's why you should follow. That's why you should carry your own Bibles with you and stay in there. I never, ever, I believe that I will stand before God one day and I will give an account for every word that I've ever said to you. I believe that it's one of the most awesome things since, since the first time as a 15-year-old lad that I stepped in that pulpit and preached and boy, was I shaking. <laughs> I've never lost the awesomeness and hope that I never do. I love preaching. Don't get me wrong. I love preaching. Not because it's easy or glorious or any of those things. It's just something that God called me to do by His grace. It took more grace for me to preach than it did for you to get saved probably. But the truth is, it's an awesome thing and I'll give an account. 
I would never, ever intentionally say anything from this pulpit that I didn't believe I could support by the Word of God. But I'm a fallible man. I want you to know it because God's Word teaches you. I hope that God gives you pastors and elders and deacons that can, that can guide you and lead you and direct you. That's what He says that He's given those gifts to you for. But it's not their word. It's not the traditions of the church. It's what God says. Make sure you know it from God's word. There's some things as individuals and as a church that we've got to contend for. And some of these things, folks, if we really believe them, it'll change our lives. It'll change the way we live. And that's what I said this morning. That's why we don't want to lose our side of vision of what this is all about. If we're just hearing all these sermons on all this contending for the faith stuff, if it's not affecting our lives, if it's not changing the way that we live, then we're missing something. God's Word should change us. It should have an effect upon us. It's not just knowing these things. It's living these things that will make a difference. We've all got our struggles. We've all got the flesh to contend with. But I want to encourage you this evening. You know, as I look around, you know, I hope and pray that each and every one of you, you know, if you know anything in this world, you know that you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. And I invite you this evening, as I do week after week after week, if you don't know that, if you're not certain of that, then please, before you walk out those doors tonight, please come and see me or one of these others. If you've got questions, if you just want somebody to pray with you, we're not arm twisters. We're not going to try to convince you to do something that you don't want to do because that won't do any good anyway. But if you don't have that certainty and you want to know it, then we're here to help you and to work with you. By the same token, Christian, you know, you might know that you're saved and on your way to heaven. Can I ask you, and I don't say it to be me, what's your life counting for right now? Are these things making a difference in your life? Is it truly the things of God that are guiding you? That is it God's will that's governing your life rather than your own will and your own desires? Let God make the difference in your life. I want to encourage you this evening. You know, you're important. God's got you here for a reason. Find out what the center of His will is. I'd say again, happiness, joy, Contentment got nothing to do with geography. It's got to do with being in the center of God's will. That's where you're going to be happy. That's where you're going to be content. That's where you're really going to know the blessings of the Lord, in the center of His will. Where does God want you? doesn't matter where that geographical location might be on this planet Earth. Men draw those barriers, not God. Where does God want you, and what does God want to do with you this evening? Father, we thank you again. For tonight, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you even as we've just tried to take this time to remind us, Lord, before we continue in this series, the things that we've looked at and their importance to us and try to, to bring it all together, Lord, so that we don't lose focus. It is important that we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Lord, as we contend, as we contend for this faith, Lord, there's certain things that we must be willing to fight for. And we've just looked at a few of these, Lord, and we pray that you would help us, Lord, to 
be settled on these matters and to, to know what you've taught us on these matters. And Lord, help us to never be ashamed. Though we stand with compassion and love, just as the Lord Jesus Christ did, help us to stand strong. Help us to stand sure. Help us to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 